major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Hello and welcome to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. I'm delighted to be joined today by Maria Shaganer, who is a Diamond Brown Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS. Maria, welcome. Thank you for having me. Maria, we want to talk today about the Russian economy. And it is possibly one of the great mysteries of the situation surrounding Russia's war on Ukraine is the impact on its economy. The basic facts are very well known. Uh, Western countries have imposed an unprecedented degree of sanctions, both on high-profile individuals connected to the regime, but also uh, on on Russia's economy itself. Uh, Western countries, with one or two fairly minor exceptions, are stopping their reliance on Russia's exports, uh, It it and, and they're stopping the supply of components that could be used by Russia in in important uh, manufacturing processes, particularly for for weapons. In spite of all of that, uh, Russia's economy seems to be quite resilient. It seems to be finding other markets. Uh, of course, it it is a uh, it has very low levels of debt uh, for, for for a large um, a large industrial economy, uh, and um, it in some ways seems to be riding out this storm. So. Let's try to understand what's going on. What is your understanding of the situation of Russia's economy right now, September 2022? It's indeed a highly debatable topic uh, that you can have very different um, opinion on. And I think with sanctions, you always have to start with the objective, which sets out your expectations, what sanctions are aiming to achieve here. And unlike 2014, the objective of this current sanctions regime is to erode sanctions' ability to fund the war. Two things are clear by now is that sanctions have failed to deter Russia and that sanctions' impact in the short term has been much less than it was expected. We heard the announcement of sanctions of massive consequences. By now, we should clearly say that that has been much more modest than we uh, initially hoped to achieve. The macroeconomic picture, and this is what Russia wants you to focus, and this is what a lot of economists are also focusing, is less devastating than it was predicted. The recent IMF forecast uh, shows that Russia's GDP will decrease only by 6% instead of the initial 10 sometimes 15% that was uh, given initially. The financial system has also stabilized. Inflation and unemployment is lower than expected. The ruble has rebounded. There has been no bank run. So again, the macroeconomic picture is, is not as devastating. That's what the Russian propaganda in particular wants you to focus on. But that comes down to two things. is a skillful response on the side of the central bank officials. They have been quite deft in its interventions, and they did have a playbook from 2014 how to react to some part of sanctions, not all of them, but that was helpful. And the second factor here is the absence of energy sanctions. 
the EU did announce oil embargo, but it has only been announced, right? It will only kick in in December. So Russia has plenty of time to replenish its coffers. If we remember that half of Russia's central bank reserves were frozen, well, by the end of this year, Russia will be able to replenish its coffers because of high energy prices. So that gives you this paradox situation that despite all of the measures and quite a lot and as was said was unprecedented, the economy's landing has been softened by this record high energy prices. But if we look at the microeconomic situation, this is where sanctions are usually effective. They make it harder for the sanctions countries to to get things, to import it or make it more expensive, more cumbersome. So, for example, if we look at manufacturing, car and aviation industry almost came to a halt. Imports, even from non-aligned countries like China, dropped by 40%. To source any chips uh, is really problematic since Russia doesn't produce them domestically. That also uh, drives spending for the, the Russian state. Um, because it aims to sustain the social contract that is still there, that it provides high uh, living standards in exchange for the ordinary Russians' non-intervention in the policy. Um, and all of this will be harder because the defense spending is, is mounting on. So it's a question of time, how much the Russian state can support this social contract, whether it will be supported by money by subsidies or whether it will be fully replaced by fear. Thank you. Um, going back to the, the sort of big picture sanctions, which is primarily targeting Russia's energy exports, as you've noted, of course, although their market gets smaller, the energy prices are super high. So that may help uh, stave off uh, some of those uh, losses. Um, What's your judgment? As, as you rightly observed, the, these sanctions have failed. You know, they were supposed to stop Russia from being able to carry out its war, and they didn't do that. Was that always going to be the case? Or is this basically because ultimately the huge markets outside the kind of NATO alliance countries still exist, particularly China, particularly India, particularly other Asian countries? Is, is that the reason that the sanctions have failed? Or are they... Actually, is, is there something structurally inadequate about those sanctions? If we go back to November, December, we know now from extensive reporting in the international media that there have been disagreements between Europeans, Americans and Brits, uh, whether Russia was ready to escalate and to wage a full-scale full war. And from the, the side of Berlin and Paris, there was a high degree of skepticism. So that also mixed messaging from European capitals perhaps didn't help to solidify that understanding that sanctions are coming. If we move on after the invasion, right, uh, the decision not to trigger energy sanctions, uh, so the timing of sanctions is again an important factor, has also slowed down what sanctions could have achieved in the short term. But that all comes down to the lack of domestic resilience. Germany, that is highly dependent on Russian gas, is still not ready to phase it out as quickly as it would ideally be the case. So it's a lot of work that needs to be done, and there is no 
ideal situation here where you have asymmetrical weapon and you can immediately trigger and cause damage in the short term. So Russia, this isn't really about sanctions, but it's about you know trade and, and, and a decision to block trade. Russia, having put up uh, kind of improbable reasons for uh, a lack of supply in the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, then announced that it would just no longer supply gas. So, of course, Germany and other European countries are rapidly moving away from Russian gas. But now the Russians are saying, well, we're not going to give you our gas anyway. Uh, this is a kind of gamble by Russia. It's a doubling down. What do you think is going to be the likely impact here? Russia understands that it has a very narrow window of opportunity when to weaponize its gas weapon. By November, European member states are obliged to fill their gas storages by 80%. It doesn't mean that after they fulfill all of their requirements vis-a-vis gas storages, winter will be smooth and warm. That's not the case uh, this year, but it will be possible to, to survive it under comfortable conditions. So it's Russia's objective to jeopardize this fulfillment of this requirement. And hence we see this, first of all, uncertainty. The they un- uncertainty is this is what the Kremlin thrives on. And with mounting economic problems on ordinary Europeans, that is perhaps easier to do once you see your energy bill and so on. Uh, But the other side here, I think what is emerging, which is a positive trend here, is transatlantic and pan-European burden sharing with U.S. um, releasing some uh, oil reserves or sending more LNG, obviously it's profits from it um, because of the current price environment. But nevertheless, there is more understanding that Europe's energy dependency on Russia needs to be phased out. And also within Europe, there is understanding, uh, which hasn't been the case before the war, that energy security is about security, right? So you have, you don't have to have all of your eggs in, in one Russian basket. You have to diversify. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes and get exclusive merchandise all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Maria, as you rightly mentioned there, you've got this uh, both burden sharing and a sort of transatlantic approach in terms of making uh, a broader energy mix for European countries. And many listeners will have seen the reports, for example, Germany has been filling its, uh, its gas storage at a higher rate than was expected, and it is doing that with very limited input from Russia. Uh, there's a new pipeline coming across the Pyrenees to connect the Iberian Peninsula with, with the rest of Europe. So there, there are all kinds of initiatives which are kind of a race against time. Uh, what's your judgment, Maria? Do, do you think Europe will be able to get its uh, arrangements in place in time to be able to get through the winter and effectively to to blunten uh, Russia's energy weapon? 
It will definitely be a harsh winter. A lot depends on weather, how cold the next winter will be. The current uh, level of ga in gas storage is, is comfortable enough to survive this winter, but that's under the condition that LNG from the U.S. keeps coming, that we have domestic reduction in gas consumption, and that renewables. So there are a lot of elements which can lead us to the next winter, which will perhaps be even harsher to, to survive. The, hence, the long-term strategy, how to phase out dependency on Russian fuel, fossil fuels is also very important. So we see the sort of reverse in terms of our commitments to energy transition. Coal is featured here as well. Nuclear plants are potentially uh, will be restored in Germany um, as well. But it has solidified the, the commitment and understanding within the EU that you have to accelerate green transition. So it's not to say that once we survive this winter, everything else will be fine. You have to um, really redraw your energy security with additional infrastructure, uh, additional LNG terminals in Germany is the key country that has come to realization. We have two additional terminals will be uh, built by the end of this year, uh, LNG uh, long-term contracts with uh, Algeria, Qatar, and so on. So it's really reshaping this energy landscape. And for Russia, it means it will lose Europe as its traditional market. So whether it can pivot to Asia or other countries is a big question mark how survivable its economic uh, model will be. Thank you. And, and you have anticipated where I wanted to go next, which is this transition. If Russia wants to flip to become the supplier of fossil fuels to the Asian uh, markets, uh, one issue is that if, if you look at the sort of pipeline maps, uh, of course, you know, Russia's reliance on the European market has meant that it, it has its infrastructure uh, funnels all of its supplies westwards. Uh, how easy will it be for Russia to, to change that infrastructure basis? Rather difficult, it's a short answer, because <laughs> even if you look across the three sectors, all uh, coal, uh, oil and gas, for all three, and they have different challenges, but for all three, you need money, time, and technology, something that Russia doesn't have, especially in the current sanctions environment. So if we talk about gas, gas is potentially the, the one item that it can ramp up, uh, shipping it more to China. At the moment, Russia supplies around 7% of China's energy mix, so there is a room to, to expand that export. And we heard that um, power of Siberia uh, 2, the, the next pipeline between Russia and China, will potentially be built. Um, and there are a lot of caveats here because the history of Russia-China infrastructure proje projects is always convoluted. It's always time consuming. So as it was in 2014, it's likely that China will try to capitalize on Russia's isolation because Russia doesn't have many other buyers. Supplying it to India, again, is very cumbersome. And again, you need additional infrastructure. And here, geography that Russia is so proud of to be the, the largest country in the world doesn't play well because you need a lot of that infrastructure to be in place. And as you said, it has historically been geared to the West. 
shipping anything by sea, um, gas, well, it's a different story, but in terms of oil, it, it depends on the upcoming um, price cap on oil. If insurance ban is likely to be part of it is in place, it will be really hard to find any Western insurer who will be willing to, to face secondary sanctions. In case of coal, it's again infrastructure that it's not there. They already been under strain because of the global pandemic. Now they're, they're more so under strain because of the EU coal ban. So again, the, the picture is very bleak how much um, Russia can diversify. The latest uh, International Energy Agency report on gas says that in the best scenario, and that's really a very optimistic scenario, it will take Russia a decade to supply the same volumes of gas to Asia, but that requires the building of power of Siberia to Arctic LNG and a bunch of other infrastructure projects. So... We're, we're looking at what appears to be a very bleak picture and, and uh, that sort of matches what you might expect. But then if we go return to the sort of uh, the opening part of this discussion, it did feel as though Russia has yet really to feel uh, the impact of this war in, in the way that people expected. So is this really just a question of delayed reaction or is something else going on here? Well, first of all, it's the discrepancy between announcing sanctions and actually implementing them. So energy sanctions is is the key here, right? We still haven't seen the true impact of energy sanctions. The, the second aspect here is that both sanctions and expert controls take time. They are both instruments that, lo- that work in the long term and have cumulative effects. So it really comes down, especially now, to tighter enforcement of sanctions, that all loopholes um, are closed down. Uh, all third countries, as much as it's possible, are alert to this coalition of the willing. And the, the price gap is, the, the I guess, the, the platform where it's gradually happening. We obviously won't be able to isolate Russia entirely because China will never join. But to tighten the screws, to make it harder for Russia, is, I guess, the, the best expectations from sanctions here. Final uh, area I just wanted to touch on is Russia's access to specific technologies, the ones that it might need for um, weapons production. There was recently a report that Russia is now importing uh, artillery shells from North Korea, which is perhaps suggestive of, of a supply chain challenge. Uh, and of course, there are components, although you know very few Western countries were supplying Russia with weapons itself, they were supplying components that could be used in weapons. What's your expectation on Russia's ability to keep up its own supplies for its military to sustain its war in Ukraine based on the sort of global sanctions position? The revelations from this report first indicate to me, which was known, I think, before the sanctions, is Russia's high dependency on Western technology. That hasn't changed. For all the talk of import substitution, including in the defense sector, the weapon system that have been inspected show to us that a lot of Western material critical components is still there. So the most critical is chips and semiconductors. This is, again, something that Russia doesn't have 
production capacity, it used to outsource it to Taiwan, to TMCS, uh, to, to produce it now that Taiwan joined uh, expert controls um, on this uh, front, it's very hard to sustain it. It leaves Russia to two things. Uh, first, um, parallel imports and trying to procure this in very murky, illicit ways. And you have plenty of sanctions peers to learn from, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, and Russia is already taking cues how to do so. And the the second here is is try to to start its own import substitution, something that Kremlin has started doing again uh, after 2000, rather failed attempt in 2014. The strategy is basically to double down on the same. For Ukraine, for the military, I guess dimension here, it means that Russia will likely to resort to all the technology, to chips that it can produce, but those chips are 20, 30 years old. So we're not talking about precision-guided weapons here, really, but it might serve the, the cause that um, it was a Russian war here is to wreak maximum havoc as possible. Right. So finally, a big question. Uh, people often talk about sanctions and say they don't work. You could talk about how uh, South Africa under apartheid had quite a vibrant economy. You could talk about how Iran has continued its uh, nuclear weapons program. You can talk about North Korea. So fundamentally, are sanctions an effective tool to manage what Russia is doing? Or is it just a small element of a larger picture? No, absolutely. Sanction can't be this magic tool that will target the military or target the economy while sparing ordinary population and somehow achieving policy goals. That I think too much to ask from sanctions and it's an imperfect instrument, we should say it openly. So it has to be part of a larger strategy here and it has to be deployed in conjunctions with other um, tools of economic statecraft. Uh, but for now, uh, it is true that other sanctions regime are still surviving. And I think surviving is the, is the key mode that we need to underline here. We're not talking about thriving economy, economic growth anymore. It will be surviving on par with Iranian North Korean regime. And that's rather bleak, given that, you know, that's not the picture of Russia we had six months ago. So the long-term picture for Russia that it will have to go through structural transformation because it can no, no longer rely on fossil fuels and on the European export market. And it will have to go through this reverse industrialization because export controls will have their impact. They will weigh on Russia's technological advan uh, advancement here. So finding this new mode of survival will be the key for the Russian regime. Brilliant. Maria Shagina, thank you so much for talking to us today and for helping us to understand this complicated, uh, contested subject. My pleasure. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch 
or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.